Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in your Bible to Acts 1. Now, how you choose to listen to this kind of sermon is kind of up to you. Um, it's a bit topical. I am taking this week to unpack a bit about the Holy Spirit. Now, that could take weeks and weeks and weeks, so I realize how much will be soon coming at you. Um, but it's okay because we're going to enter the book of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the book of Acts is about, it's historically Acts, meaning the Acts of the Apostles. But in reality, it's the Acts of Jesus by the power of the Spirit through the Apostles. Um, the book of the Holy Spirit, as it's called by some. Um, it mentions the Holy Spirit more than any other New Testament book. Um, so with that, I thought it would be good to start out with the Bible's whole teaching I don't mean everything the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, but in a general way, the, the activities of the mini, in the, or the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? That will help us as the Holy Spirit um, continually is a player in the book of Acts. We'll see that very clearly together. And verse 8 begins this introduction. Um, not an introduction of the Holy Spirit to the life of his people, but in this book, the book of Acts. Jesus came and inaugurated his kingdom with his presence. And then he promised to spread his kingdom by sending his spirit. Um, that's what makes the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, so much greater than any other kingdom that comes to mind. The kingdoms we know are, are covered by land and by people um, conquered or under the dominion of a certain ruler. And it's always limited. As great as a human kingdom can seem, it's always limited. But the kingdom of God is not like this. The kingdom of God is about conquering. It's about God conquering the hearts of sinful men and women by his spirit, by regenerating them, by bringing them into relationship with himself. So it transcends borders. It's not beholden to governments or countries. It transcends all of that and extends across all peoples. Um, that's the kingdom of Christ. And the way he does it, the reason he can do it, is because he sends his spirit to do this expansion work. And the book of Acts begins the foundation of that expansion work. So today, as we start to enter the book of Acts together, let's pause a bit and consider again who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing. Hear God's word as I read this one verse from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is God's holy word. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, thank you for this key verse in the book of Acts. Uh, your works, O oh Lord, are manifold and they are awesome in every way. And Lord Jesus, you are our prophet, our priest, our king. You are our savior and Holy Spirit. You are the wonder worker of the Godhead, always present, working in us and for us, and for the expansion of Christ's kingdom. O oh Lord, enlighten us by your Holy Spirit as we seek to learn more about this third person of the Trinity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, the book of Acts is about the work of the Holy Spirit by the will of the Father based on the work of the Son. Um, not only are the activities recorded by the book of Acts empowered by the Holy Spirit, all spiritual good is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the amazing things you see play out in history as recorded by Acts, it's all because of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but very uh, 
personally to every one of us any spiritual good you have ever experienced. No way to overstate that. Any spiritual good you have ever experienced is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's by the will of the Father, based on the work of the Son on the cross, but it's the work of the Spirit that enlivens us together with Christ so that we may lay hold of him and trust him. And it's the work of the Spirit that makes us aware of our sin, aware of his righteousness, able to do anything of any spiritual good. It's through the Spirit. Now, it's right what J.I. Packer said. He's the shy member or the shy member of the Trinity. But that doesn't mean inactive. That just means the Spirit works in the Trinity to push forward the Father and the Son. In perfect unity of mind with no jealousy whatsoever, the Godhead works just this way. And we get a glimpse of the Holy Spirit in a way that we don't see him otherwise in the book of Acts. Think about the book of Acts, what you know of it. Um, It starts with the Spirit's introduction coming in the next chapter that we'll cover. Listen to some of the wording about the Spirit's coming. In Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This was a special occurrence fulfilling Old Testament prophecy about this new enhanced ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was present before, but filling those who are united to Christ, that that was a different ministry that is shown forth now in the New Testament. And it first happens in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts has a lot of firsts as it lays foundation to the expansion of the kingdom Jesus began um, later in chapter 4. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together, it was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So we see the Holy Spirit gradually through the book of Acts coming in power to the point where we see it as the norm, that is, that the Spirit would indwell those who are in Christ. But it's now just being introduced in the book of Acts. Later in chapter 10, Peter. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews, who had come with Peter, were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. In fulfillment of what was promised through Abraham, now the Gentiles were receiving the full benefits of redemption. And it was sealed to them through the Holy Spirit. Not just the Jews now, but the Gentiles too. And Peter and company were amazed at what they saw. Then Acts chapter 15. This is that time when Paul is meeting. uh, They're having basically counsel over what would be the right and pure message of the gospel. And the apostles are giving some instructions about how to go about their their lives and their ministry. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols. He's telling them how to get along as they go on their missionary journeys. And from blood and from uh, what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, all these things that would have been offenses to people as they went out and about. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. The Holy Spirit guides and directs in their mission. That's the point. The Holy Spirit appears prominently in Acts. So much so that the book has been called the Gospel of the Holy Spirit. In all the book, there is nothing, uh, in all of the book, there's nothing that's not related to the Holy Spirit somehow. We'll see that. I've seen one author's statement, and I agree. God the Holy Spirit is the executive of the Godhead. Whatever God does, he does 
by the Spirit. Now, I want to mention to you something before we begin, and I hope you remember this throughout our study of Acts. Um, It's an interpretive key. Uh, It's important to preach the word. Also, at times like this, pastorally, it's good to teach the people interpretive keys that will help you. You know there are 66 books in the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, um, that may be new to you. There are 66 different books, uh, groups of them written by the same author, but almost 40 different authors. The genre of the books are different. Some are books of poetry, like Psalms. Others are apocalyptic, like, say, Revelation, or prophetic, that combine apocalyptic and poetic. Um, Some of it is just straight history. Uh, Most of it is gospel history, like in the New Testament. It's written as history, but it's showing you with a purpose that you believe on Christ. Um, There's historic narrative. The point is, in histories, it's describing that which happened. It's not necessarily saying this thing that's happened is the norm and should be followed. It just means to say, look what happened. Look at how this occurred. Um, Sometimes, though, the text will prescribe that we do some of what we see. Now, the epistles that Paul wrote, primarily their purpose was to give clarity about how we should live, what we should do, what commands to follow, what, what you might say normal Christian life looks like. Um, Whereas the book of Acts, it's more descriptive than prescriptive, if that makes sense. It describes the work of the Holy Spirit in this inauguration of the kingdom of Christ as the Spirit now comes upon the people of God, which was unique in this way since times before. And now the Holy Spirit indwells those who trust in him, and the Spirit helps us to be the witnesses we are, and it describes the process for how that unfolds. That helps us as we interpret. Sometimes we'll be in the book of Acts and there'll be a sermon preached or there'll be a teaching. It'll be very clear. Hey, that's prescribing something for every Christian of every era. There are other times where it just describes something that might have been a one-time instance for the purpose of inaugurating that kingdom and establishing the expansion of the kingdom. Keep that in mind as we walk through a book like Acts. Each of the books have to be taken on the basis of the literary form that they come in. With that in mind, and I'll refer to that again, Let's ask first, who is the Holy Spirit, biblically speaking? I said there are different ways to listen to this. Some, it might just be good to listen to the overview, and it won't, you won't be able to remember every scripture reference, but you'll see the balance of scripture teaching these big topics. Some will just want to write down those verse references, and I'll give them to you, and you'll see it in the outline where you could put them in. Whichever works best for you to gain some strength and clarity about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. First, we're introduced to the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1. At the very beginning of the Bible, it should not surprise us that we see the Holy Spirit at work. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So, the Spirit is with God at the beginning, pre-existent, before creation. Wasn't created, was already there, so he's God. Later in Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. You see the plural there. And let them have dominion. This is just the Godhead speaking uh, to himself. Now, it's true, it's a, it's a Hebrew idiom, it's a plural of majesty. It manifests how majestic God is. But it also does refer, at least it implies, something of the plural nature of God, the triune nature of God. In the book of Job, we see more about the Holy Spirit. And I draw on Job because he's an ancient figure, probably a contemporary with Abraham. In Job, it says, the Spirit of God has made me. 
and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So there's the sovereignty of the Spirit over life, Job acknowledges. This is a, a feature of deity. In Isaiah 63, speaking of the rebellious Israelites, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. See how personal it is? The Spirit's not just a force or an influence. He's a personage and not an it. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, and therefore he turned to, them to be their enemy, and he himself fought against them. In Psalm 139, among other references in the Psalms, verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. That's the grave. The Holy Spirit is everywhere omnipresent. These are the attributes of God. He has the attributes of deity. The Holy Spirit was the agent of creation. The Holy Spirit is not a force or an influence, but a personage. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is God. And then the New Testament teaches a fuller a fuller explanation of the Holy Spirit. But what's important for us very practically is what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit and his purpose. Jesus explaining his, what would happen after his ascension. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. They couldn't understand this because earthly kings had to be there to build the kingdom. And he said, no, it'll be better than that. This kingdom will be much more effective and this is how it will be. It is to your advantage that I will go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he's revealing his strategy for kingdom expansion and effectiveness by saying, I will ascend to heaven and send my spirit. And from his place in heaven, he, the king, will reign through his spirit, converting people to himself. Later in John 16, 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. I mean, they were freaking before he ascended. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity works. There's no jealousy there. There's a promoting of the Son and the Father by the Spirit, and it's all to the glory of the, God, of the Godhead. It's a beautiful picture, even though it's difficult. And if you're thinking, that's confusing to me. Yes, uh, but just... It's a mystery to be pondered. You can't unpack it too much, but recognize what the scripture teaches and give praise to God for it. That even gives us some sense of it is an amazing grace on him, his part alone. But there are other titles that the Spirit um, is known by in the Bible. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord God, the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, of Jesus Christ, of his Son, He's called God. He's treated with, on an equal basis with God the Father and God the Son. He has the characteristics of God. He does the work of God. Just to say that he is the shy member of the Trinity, uh, it may be true if you want to ca characterize him that way, but he is not inactive. In fact, far from it. That gets to our second question. What does the Holy Spirit do? And you have a list of things that the Holy Spirit does. The list could be four times this this large, and, and I'm not joking about that, can be. I'll, I'll mention some of the other activities or ministries of the Spirit, but these headings will help us really gather the Holy Spirit and his ministry, which when we go through Acts, every time, and there are 56 times in which 28 chapters of Acts refers to the Holy Spirit, we'll know who we're talking about. First of all, the Holy Spirit, the foundational ministry, most important to everyone here, 
the most important ministry of the Holy Spirit is first and foremost, he regenerates us. The Holy Spirit borns us again. That's what it means. Regenerate means something needs generation because it's dead. So it has to be regenerated. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. We're born again by the Spirit of God. Of course, the most vivid picture of this is in John chapter 3. We know John 3.16, but the whole of chapter 3 tells the full story of what is meant in John 3.16. The whole of the story is that Pharisee comes to Jesus basically wanting to know if he was all right with God. He asks in so many words, you know, teacher, how can I know? And so he, he's nervous about his, he's insecure about his place with God. And so Jesus responds to him in the way that we find in John chapter 3. And listen to what he says and how it relates to the spirit regenerating us. Jesus answered him, John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus gives a natural response. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This can't be done. No person can do this. You're right, Nicodemus. You're exactly right. That cannot be done. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So you have to be born of the Spirit before you get to John 3.16. That's the point. And how do you know if you're born of the Spirit? Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Who believes in him? He who is born by the Spirit, which, by the way, you can't do. We are totally dependent on the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Totally dependent. Not any of us enlivens the Holy Spirit. If it did, he's not God. But he is. And if it was up to you, you would go to hell. And so would I, I'd remain dead. Because a dead person can't get out of it anyways. It's that foundational, what the Spirit does in the ministry of salvation and redemption. Jonathan Edwards captured it well. We are dependent on God, not only for redemption itself, but for our faith in the Redeemer. Not only for the gift of his Son, but for the Holy Ghost, for our conversion. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and following, it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Later, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice, he, he takes account of our deadness, and he makes us alive together. He doesn't take account of our deadness and say, please pick me. Please choose me. Please come to me. Thankfully, he doesn't do that because a dead person can't do it. It doesn't say that. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when, the most extreme place you could possibly be, even when you were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So he saves us by his grace, completely unmerited favor, because of Christ, so he could show the immeasurable riches of his grace and all the glory rightfully goes to him. The regeneration of the Holy Spirit is the foundational truth of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of every believer. Francis Turretin, one of the great 
theologians of the church said, this calling is an act of the grace of God and Christ by which he calls men dead in sins and lost in Adam through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to union with Christ and salvation obtained in him. Listen to what it says in Titus. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. You see how he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The regeneration of the Holy Spirit is truly foundational in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so how does the Holy Spirit work in regeneration? Well, normally, this is the normal way, as the word of God goes forth about the gospel in particular, how a person can be made alive together with Christ by faith and trust in him. God ordains that that message going forward, in the normal case, will be met with the Holy Spirit's ministry, and the Holy Spirit will enliven the person who hears the word being preached, give them life so they can receive it, and they receive Christ and are saved. Now, in our perception, I believed in Christ and I was saved. That's right, that's your experience. But what happened behind it was that God quickened your dead spirit so that you could receive it. That's how it's guaranteed. That's how we have security, real security. I mean, think for a minute about the alternative. That's utterly insecure, impossible. In fact, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit is captured by Spurgeon when he says this, when a man or a woman is converted to God, it is done in a moment. Regeneration is an instantaneous work. A man hates God, the Holy Spirit makes him love God. A man or a woman is opposed to Christ, he or she hates his gospel, does not understand it, and will not receive it. The Holy Spirit comes puts light into his darkened understanding, takes the chain from his bondage will, gives liberty to his conscience, gives life to his dead soul, so that the voice of conscience is heard, and the man becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. And all this is done, mark you, by the instantaneous supernatural influence of God, the Holy Spirit, working as he wills among the sons and daughters of men. At the point of regeneration, by the way, there are many other ministries we could have covered. There's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes upon us. There is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that happens instantaneously, but there are other um, times where that word is used to describe giving someone a special ability to carry out a particular mission. We'll get there at some point in our study. The sealing of the Holy Spirit that secures us. The baptizing of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with regeneration. When he brings regeneration, he baptizes. I know there's traditions that I think wrongly teach that you have to speak in tongues or have to have some sign to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. If that's the case, the vast majority of people in the history of the church weren't baptized in the Holy Spirit because they didn't speak in tongues. I mean, even Billy Graham didn't speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit doesn't just regenerate. The Holy Spirit illuminates Scripture for us so we can understand. In fact, if any of this is making sense to you, there's only one reason. It's because the Holy Spirit has given you spiritual eyes to make sense of this. In Ephesians 1, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge in him. So the spirit is what gives spiritual knowledge. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? We believe according to the working of his great might. We see spiritually because he gives us light. He illuminates his truth so we can understand it. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to, God, to us by God. Calvin says very wonderfully, and I think pastorally, the testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. For God alone is a fit witness to himself in his word. So also the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaim that which was divinely commanded. By this power, we are drawn and inflamed, knowing and willingly to obey him, yet also more vitally and more effectively than by mere human willing or knowing. The Spirit illuminates Scripture so that we can understand it. First Thessalonians 1.5, Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. James Boyce, one of my favorites, said, The objective written word and the inner supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit work together. The Holy Spirit illuminating the word of God to God's people. The word without the illumination of the Holy Spirit remains a closed book. The Holy Spirit does something else. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and gives us power to overcome. Now, I could put the conviction of the Holy Spirit under regeneration because that's part of what he does. He convicts us of our sin and draws us to Christ. It's, it could be in that complex of things the Holy Spirit does. But here I'm talking more about how for a believer, um, the Holy Spirit will work to convict you of your sin. If you've ever been, all of us have been in sin at some point in our walk with Christ, and hopefully you were miserable. And guess what? That's the love of the Father for you. He doesn't want you to stay. If you're not miserable, be worried. Now, we could suppress it. We could get numb to it. But it's the misery that shows that God is our company. That's how we know the Spirit will not let us rest in our sinfulness. And the other thing is he's so wonderful that he doesn't tell you all your sins at once. In Galatians 5, we see this captured. Paul saying, I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So you're struggling with the flesh. He's talking to believers here. But if you walk by the Spirit, you won't. Why? Because the Spirit will do what? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So you'll enter into this relationship where the Spirit, as you walk in the Spirit, according to His Word and by the power of His Spirit, it'll come up against the sin in your life, and that's where the conviction comes. Hebrews chapter 12. And... And have you forgotten the exhortation and address to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. That's conviction. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter, for that matter, whom he receives. So the, our father will work in our lives as sons and daughters of his to bring discipline, and that means conviction. And that's a ministry of the Spirit. Thomas Brooks says, repentance. He's talking about this turning away from sin, this conviction that God brings that has us turn away. Not just when we became a believer, but it continues. Repentance is a grace. It must have its daily operation. 
as well as other graces. A true penitent must go from, from faith to faith, from strength to strength. He must never stand still or turn back. True repentance is a continued spring where the waters of godly sorrow are always flowing. My sin is ever before me, Thomas quotes the psalmist. But also, in 2 Corinthians 7, for godly grief produces repentance. That's conviction. Godly conviction or realization about our sin that the Spirit brings. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, I got caught, or this is uncomfortable, this is inconvenient that you found out. Worldly grief, it produces death. Remember our Shorter Catechism just does a tremendous job capturing this idea. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit that brings about repentance. And repentance unto life is a saving grace where a sinner, out of his true sense of sin and the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. The Holy Spirit does something else for us. The Holy Spirit assures us of our adoption as God's children. Part of it is done through, you see how these overlap, done through conviction. But the Spirit of God can compel a believer, whatever the situation is in your life, it could be the worst situation you've ever imagined in some relationship or in some hospital bed or some other desperate place, or it could be in the top of the mountain, that moment when you might be shaken about your identity, the Holy Spirit attests to your spirit that you are his child, no matter what happens. Whatever happens outwardly, you are his child. Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit, it says, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Galatians 4, 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. I love what our confession says in the 12th chapter. All those who are justified, God vouchsafes. We don't use that word nearly enough, do we? Vouchsafes. He vouchsafes in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, us, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and the privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, and have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and we're unable to cry, Abba, Father, we're pitied, we're protected, we're provided for, chastened by him even as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. A ministry of the Holy Spirit precious to all of us is his ministry of assurance of our adoption as God's children. But also, please notice, fifthly, that the Holy Spirit enables us to be Christ-like producers of spiritual fruit. In other words, to do good works. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do this. In Ephesians 3, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He doesn't command anything that he then doesn't give you the spiritual strength to obey. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. We can't do any of these things in any pure sense without the Holy Spirit because they're fruits of the Spirit. Gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So when you read in the New Testament in particular, 
Um, admonish one another with all wisdom. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Encourage each other. Encourage one another. Um, do not slander one another. Don't grumble against one another. Confess your sins to each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Any of these difficult commands are possible because of the fruit of the Spirit working in you and in me. Finally, I want you to notice that the Holy Spirit does something else, and he does this for us collectively as a church. This is where the ministry of the Holy Spirit goes from just the personal, um, the personal, you might say, benefits we receive to how this impacts the church as a whole. I mean, all of those others affect the church as a whole, obviously, but here it's really vivid. Uh, the Holy Spirit empowers us, the people of God, those who are born again, with gifts, special gifts for the edification of the church, for the growth of the church, to build up other people around you, not just for yourself. Now, sometimes it's difficult to tell. Is it a talent or a gift? Listen, okay, if it's a talent, God gave you the talent. So in a real sense, everything is a spiritual gift in that way. Even your wiring, what you're smart at, what you're good at, what you're gifted with, what you're skilled with, it's all from God. But spiritual gifting has something more to say about it. And it's, it's the Spirit of God using that thing about you, or maybe giving you something you didn't have normally, and makes you effective because of the Spirit's attending that gift or giving you that gift afresh. Whatever the case, it's spiritual. And he wants you to use your gifts and talents. It could be, you could be a helper, the kind that is behind the scenes and you're supporting. You could be a, a gift of service in this way. You just want to serve behind the scenes and you want to serve others and build up the church. You may have the gift of giving. Um, you can give money that other people can't give. Or you have some other resource you can give. And that's what God calls you to do. That's spiritual gifting that gives you, that has you give it without any other thought. But I've got to do this because God has gifted me this way. Or it could be teaching. It could be preaching. It could be all manner of things that you can imagine uh, used for spiritual good. But lots of them are listed. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 12. And there are a variety of activities. By it is the same God who empowers them in all and everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's the key. Ephesians 4, 7 and following. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 11 in, in Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, and here is the key, for building up the body of Christ. So this empowerment of the Holy Spirit in this way is meant to build up the church. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each was, has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The way I like to describe it, how you know it's a spiritual gift, you just have to give it. All of us, for instance, we all have to give money. We should. That's what God calls us to. But sometimes it's tough. It's not, a person who has a gift like this can't wait to do this. Now, I hope that's true of us all to some degree, but there's something more. They're not satisfied unless they're using that gift. It, it could be helps. It could be hospitality. A lot of times where we're dry is because we're not using the spiritual gift we have, whatever it may be. I've just listed for you a few. And I know this has come at you. But I, what I want you to, to gather is 
who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. So when we come across the 56 occurrences of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, we have a fuller appreciation for the third person of the Trinity in this way and some guidelines to understand what he does in the economy of the Trinity itself. I want to close by reading some wise words from one of my favorite books ever, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, a book everyone should try to read uh, for sure in their life, but then you'll, try, you'll find yourself wanting to read it every four or five years just as a refresher. And he says this about the Holy Spirit, and it's a good way to close. Do we honor the Holy Spirit by recognizing and relying on his work, Packer asks, or do we slight him by ignoring it and thereby dishonor not merely the Spirit, but the Lord who sent him? In our faith, do we acknowledge the authority of the Bible, the prophetic Old Testament, and the apostolic New Testament, which he, the Holy Spirit, inspired? Do we read and hear, uh, read the Bible with the reverence and receptiveness that are due to the Word of God? If not, we dishonor the Holy Spirit. In our life, do we apply the authority of the Bible and live by the Bible, whatever men may say against it, recognizing that God's Word cannot be but true, and that what God has said, He certainly means and will stand to? If not, we dishonor the Holy Spirit who gave us the Bible. And finally, and I was thinking of this for Mary and Woody and Pavel and, and Pastor Yvonne, and also for our teams, uh, to Juarez, to the Omaha Nation, to us as ambassadors of Christ. In our witness, do we remember that the Holy Spirit alone, by his witness, can authenticate our witness and look to him to do so and trust him to do so and show the reality of our trust, as Paul did, by eschewing the gimmicks of human cleverness? If not, we dishonor the Holy Spirit. I close with Acts 1.8 once again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word and for its teaching, its revelation about yourself. We are grateful, Father, that you have chosen us, that you have, uh, by the good pleasure of your will, decided to give us grace that we do not deserve. That's what makes it grace. We are grateful, Father. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you would provide payment for us. You would give yourself for us, that we would have your righteousness as you took our sin upon yourself and paid for it perfectly to God's satisfaction entirely on the cross for your precious work we thank you Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit that you would apply to us the will of the Father based on the work of the Son pray O oh Lord that you would encourage each brother and sister here today with these words in their life during this week in Jesus name Amen